The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 68. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. So we have been looking at the whole COVID-19 pandemic from all different angles over the past five weeks on this podcast. We've done some deep dives into the obvious federal legislation and WARN Act notification requirements. We've taken a specific look at the antitrust implications of this pandemic. Today I wanted to do a deep dive focus on unionizing, union organizing, and some traditional labor issues, and specifically how this pandemic might impact that issue. Next week we're going to do a deep dive uh, and devote an entire episode to some frequently asked questions about the use of PPP and other loan funding money. But today, as I said, I want to focus a little bit on union organizing. And with me to do that is my partner here at Cozen O'Connor in our labor and employment group, Dan Johns. He has been a guest of the podcast before. Uh, He regularly practices in all facets of traditional labor law and union-related issues, including interest and grievance arbitration, collective bargaining, and unfair labor practice litigation before the NLRB and state agency. I'm very happy that he was willing to join me for a few minutes tonight. Dan, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. So uh, we've got a lot of issues uh, being batted around when it comes to COVID-19 and this whole pandemic. And one of the issues that we want to do a little bit of a deeper dive in uh, for purposes of today is unionizing and the effect that all of this is having uh, on union organizing. So let's start right there, Dan. Uh, What should employers anticipate when it comes to union organizing efforts in light of the current pandemic? Well, I would say in a word, we can expect more. Um, In a post-pandemic world, I think we'll see more union organizing, more campaigns, and more concerted activity. Even in the COVID-19 pandemic world, I think we've seen some of that. um, You know, we could talk a little bit about that later. But, you know, I think we are going to see the conditions are right to see more union organizing in the near term and maybe even the long term. Um, In a lot of ways, when you look at it, the COVID-19 pandemic has created sort of almost the perfect storm for union organizing in the workplace. We're going to see unemployment and economic uncertainty. We have employee safety issues, not just regular employee safety issues, but safety issues to the point of life and death in, in many circumstances. We've seen massive concern about pay relative to hazardous working conditions. And, you know, in many instances, we've seen some employers who made mistakes in this world, which is not surprising given that we're in an unprecedented situation. But um, not all these issues have been handled sort of well from an employee perspective. And when you put those things together, I think no matter how you look at it, you're looking at the type of circumstances where you will see employees look to unions. 
Yeah, I was just talking today as well, and it's a great point. Uh, I think, and you mentioned uh, concerted activity. We've been talking so much in the last couple of years uh, about social media and about uh, protected concerted activity under the NLRA and what the NLRB has been doing about it. There's no question, I think, that once employees start to return to work uh, and they have a chance to see you know, what the employers are doing with the new physical workplaces, what kind of protocols are they setting up? I think we're going to see even more than ever employees uh, speaking collectively and acting collectively, whether on social media or otherwise, uh, about their concerns over these issues. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. I think it's already started. And I think one of the questions that really is, is will this be sort of a permanent kind of change um, in how people view the workplace, because I think a lot of people before this pandemic weren't looking at it from the standpoint of we need to organize collectively in order to to improve our working conditions. But when you look at it from the standpoint of, you know, their lives being placed at risk and those types of issues, I think you may see more employee, you know, organizing more employee activity surrounding those types of issues just because people are more aware of it now and people, you know, it matters a little bit more in this world. And what's the other part of it that's fascinating to me, and I, I, I'm not looking to unnecessarily plug my own podcast because, you know, I would never do that. But uh, just a couple of episodes ago, uh, we did this great two-part debate. Uh, we had a plaintiff's, you know, employee side, lawyer on one side and a defendant company um, attorney on the other side. And I asked the question about do we see unions becoming more or less prevalent in the future. And maybe not so surprisingly, uh, our company defendant lawyer suggested that uh, unions may not be needed so much as they uh, perhaps uh, had been as we move into the future. And, you know, I'm sort of wondering and listening to you talk about this, whether all bets are off to some extent and and whether the whole pandemic and COVID-19, this whole era, will actually do the reverse and lead to an uptick in union organizing? Yeah, I don't think there's any question. I, I think I understand where that attorney was coming from, from the standpoint of looking at all the protections you have, not just on a federal level, you know, for employees right now, but all the sort of developments we've seen on local and state levels from the standpoint of scheduling, from the standpoint of paid sick leave, from all those types of things. Those are issues that unions used to negotiate. You've got a union and you've got benefits like that. When we've seen those developments in this world, you could argue that with all those legal protections now that have continued to expand, um, that maybe they aren't as necessary. But then, boom, when, when COVID-19 hits and you see the types of issues that, that we have now in the workplace, I think there is going to be a change. And I think unions will, will, whether they are or not or are not necessary, I think a lot of employees will think they're necessary. And I think that's really the relevant thing from the standpoint of organizing, because the issues we've seen. I think employees will look elsewhere. They're already looking to the press. They're already looking to, you know, complaints to government agencies. But once you can actually have things, you know, in person where you see union organizing, I think you're going to see them looking to unions as well. Yeah, no question about it. And and look, at the end of the day, um, if employees feel as if uh, they're not being heard or that companies aren't listening to them uh, and their needs, uh, by all means, they should be uh, using unions or, or other um, other avenues 
uh, to bring about change and have their voices heard. There's no question about that. And the flip side of that is that employers, companies should do a better job communicating with their employees and listening to their employees. So perhaps uh, some of those avenues don't have to be pursued outside of the workplace. Um, you, you touched on this a moment ago uh, in response to my first question, um, but, but so what are the issues that may drive union organizing in a post-COVID-19 world? I mean, really, they're not unlike the issues that, that sort of drove organizing in a pre-COVID-19 pandemic world. It's just I think they're going to be of more concern right now. Um, I think first and foremost, in a post-pandemic world, you're going to see job security being one of the issues that really drives things. You and I both know, you know, um, you know, we're lawyers who deal with that, that job security unions don't really generally aid in job security, but employees oftentimes think they do and unions sell that um, from that standpoint. And we are going to see, no matter how you look at it, significant upticks in unemployment, significant layoffs. We've already seen it, furloughs and all those types of things. And job security has always been a factor that mattered in union organizing. You know, pre-pandemic world, it didn't seem so significant with, um, you know, under 4% unemployment or wherever it was nationwide. Post-pandemic, it's going to be an issue and there's going to be a lot of people looking to say, where can I find that security? And I think unions will really attempt to exploit that fear and that fear will be real and it will exist. Um, I think you're going to see stuff around pay. You've already seen it from the standpoint of what employees have talked about with hazard pay and those types of things, but there are going to be classes of employees who come out of this feeling somewhat aggrieved with respect to them having to put themselves on the line. We see commercials every day, if you watch as much TV as I do, like <laughs> I do in this working out of my basement world. Um, but all these I, things, My Netflix has been exhausted at this point, so I'm looking for but, anything else to watch. All right, that's good. But in this post-pandemic, you know, this pandemic world, these commercials show everyone as heroes. Um, and um, sometimes when you think of yourself as a hero, you think you're not necessarily being compensated like a hero. And in many instances, you know, that may be true. I think you're going to see stuff around employee sick leave, family leave issues. In this pandemic world, we've seen a lot of employers, you know, move to give people additional leave. And we've seen the CARES Act. We've seen a lot of those things there. Um, some of that's going to go away. And I think people are still going to want it. You know, if you've been sick with COVID-19, why should that be different than if I get the flu next winter? Um, and if you get treated differently, I think, I think all those issues together um, are going to, you know, be the types of things that really drive it. But I also think something that you said earlier, I think really is important too. Some of the things that may drive this are really just, I think there's been almost a shift in thinking of basic elements of employee power in the workplace. And I think when you put your life on the line, people want to feel like they have more say in what's going on. And I think you may just see organizing based not on pay, not on those types of issues, but just on basic issues of pay. And obviously, the other thing that drives this, it always has, is feelings of mistreatment and fairness. And, you know, I, I talk to a lot of clients um, dealing with issues, you know, not the people who are working at home, but the people who are out there working. All, employers have done lots of good things. This is not about employers doing bad things, leading the unit or organizing. Employers have done a lot of good things. But no matter what, the stress of dealing with this, this pandemic has caused employees just to feel basic basic elements of mistreatment, um, no matter what employers do. And I think that attitude in a post-pandemic world is going to carry on for a bit. And I think that will lead to fertile union organizing. Yeah, no question about it. And, and we've been spending so much time 
uh, really the last few days, the last few couple of weeks as um, employers are starting to think about the return to work uh, life and world uh, and, and whether, you know, things like temperature taking and temperature taking protocols and the kinds of things that employers are uh, preparing for, uh, it may very well be putting aside whether existing unions uh, have a right to have those issues collectively bargained. Um, but it may be to your point, if you have employees who just don't like the temperature taking protocols or some other safety protocols uh, that are newly instituted when they get back to work, that may be breeding ground for them to uh, want to organize collectively. And it's it's interesting. It's the type of, I, I 100% agree with that, Mike, but it's the type of thing too with like these protocols you know, you have to feel a little bit for employers because in some instances, half the employees want everyone to be tested and to have their temperature taken and half the other employees don't want it at all. They don't want to have to wait in line to do it. And it's kind of hard to balance out those concerns. And in the end, you, you just have sort of dissatisfaction, which is not great. No question. I think you have half of the listeners probably shaking their head. Yes, uh, you're right. We got to feel bad for employers and probably the other half, give or take, who are saying, are you kidding me? Well, who's feeling bad for the employers? But uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's no question. And I think communication with employees at the end of the day, like so many employment law and HR issues, is really the key to all of this as we begin to get back to work. Um, are, are there any particular industries that are the most likely targets for union organizing as we move forward in the coming months? Yeah, I think I think there are, um, you know, leaving aside the obvious ones, which I'll touch on in a second. The industry, believe it or not, that I think is most, you know, most likely to see additional organizing coming out of this is healthcare. And, I, you know, people may listen to this and say, well, that's strange. Healthcare is, you know, they've been the ones where there's been the focus on healthcare. People are still working. But number one, these have been the employees who have been most at risk. Number one. Two, there have been significant issues of um, lack of PPE in many workplaces around the country. This is an issue for which it's a national issue, but I think for which employees themselves have issues with respect to their own employers and how those things have been handled. Third, counterintuitively, despite the sort of COVID-19 pandemic, many, many healthcare institutions um, have financial issues based on the fact that all elective and, and in many instances, non-elective surgeries um, I've talked to a lot of healthcare institutions who wonder where are the heart attacks, where are the strokes? We used to get these all the time, are people dying at home, but they're certainly not in the hospital. So we're going to see substantial financial pressure on the industry. And on top of all those issues leading to that, I think on top of that, um, I think there's also been an empowerment sort of the healthcare hero stuff you've seen, which I think will lead to people thinking um, that organizing is the right way to go. And then even on top of that, of the last 10 years, let's say, if you were to look at industries, like um, what's been the stuff where we've seen the most organizing even without the pandemic? Healthcare. So we have unions that are prepared. We have unions that have a lot of organizers on staff. And I think you have unions waiting to see which are the targets we should go after when some of these sort of restrictions are lifted. And I think you will see a massive amount of organizing in the healthcare sector because of that. So whether it's healthcare uh, or, you know, any other industry, what should employers do now uh, and at the time that employees begin to return to work to address union organizing? Um, well, I mean, you've touched on it to a certain extent. I mean, it, it's listen and communicate. These are difficult issues. There's no question about it. Um, but and, and in many instances, employers can't always do what employees are asking for. But in many instances, they've turned off and they haven't listened to what those concerns are. 
good employee relations is the same thing as good sort of, you know, union avoidance type activities in this, in this issue, which is listen to your employees and see what you can do. Communicate with them. Sometimes it's not about doing what they want. Sometimes it's just about having them understood that you've heard them, getting back to them with respect to issues that have been raised. I think all those types of issues, you know, employers should be doubly focusing on right now. But beyond that, I really do believe that from the standpoint of certain industries, you should be preparing now. You should think about what sort of types of training and other types of things you should do or need to do with respect to a post-pandemic workforce when people return, because these things can come up quickly. And beyond that, um, you know, I think you just need to be vigilant with respect to issues in the workplace and organizing activities. Um, this has been a tough time, this sort of, you know, last six, seven weeks, however long we've been at this at this point, right? Um, you know, for both for employees in the workplace, for managers, for everyone trying to deal with these issues. And I think there will be a certain amount of sort of relief when things are lifted, people feel safe again. But these issues are still going to be there. So I think you need to prepare now and make sure that people understand that in the post-pandemic world, when we feel like we can finally relax, maybe you shouldn't relax so much world. And when you touch on training and you're talking about training, the kinds of things that maybe employers should be thinking about doing now for the eventual re- eventual return to work, what kind of training are you talking about? Are you talking about, you know, training of supervisors, managers? What, what kind of training are you referring to? Yeah, I'm talking about training of supervisors and managers. Just, you know, first of all, good HR type things, the things that we were talking about, about listening to your employees it's always a good idea to remind your supervisors and your managers as to what are the types of activities, not only that are good ideas, but what is expected of you as a supervisor. More is expected of you than just sort of getting the work out the door. There are employee relations, employee morale, HR issues that are an expectation. And sometimes in the world of getting things done, those things get pushed to the bottom of the list. But in a post-COVID-19 world, I think those things ought to be pushed up the list a little bit again from that standpoint. And I think that's the sort of training you need to go through. And just again, to remind supervisors to to be attentive to these issues and to raise these issues um, when they see them. Beyond that, I think people benefit from just knowing what the law is in this area, knowing that certain types of things are protected by the National Labor Relations Act, you know, the types of concerted activity we touched on at the beginning of this. Um, just again, reminding supervisors that you can't take action against employees, you know, for doing certain things like that to improve their terms and conditions of employment. Those types of trainings, I think, will be important and employers should think about implementing. That's a great segue uh, to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. Um, As many of us know, the NLRB recently changed the rules governing the union election process. I also know there's been a legal challenge to those changes. But how do you think the changes and the challenges will factor into union organizing going forward? You know, it's it's interesting. So let me touch on sort of what's happened, and then we'll talk about um, answer your question after that. I mean, so. We had rules. We had then under President Obama, the NLRB um, sort of swings back and forth, as you and I have talked about before uh, on this podcast. But um, we had ambush, what people call the ambush election rules that that were implemented under the Obama board. And basically, I won't get into the details of it, um, the sort of arcane labor law. Basically, what those rules did was to limit the ways that which employers could challenge um, election petitions, union election petitions in advance of an election being held and to shorten the time period from when a petition was filed to when an election was held. Generally speaking, the, the you know, p- 
prevailing wisdom has been that the shorter that amount of time is, the less time employers have to talk to employees, the easier it is for unions to win campaigns. Once those rules were in effect, most people assumed there would be massive amounts of, of union organizing, and I don't think it materialized quite as big as what people thought. I do think there were certain industries, again, healthcare, I think, being one of them, where there were unions who took advantage of them, but a lot of other unions didn't. Now, flip, you know, fast forward to, to the Trump board, and basically we have those rules being repealed. Not completely, and again, I, I don't think it's necessary to get into the details of that, but essentially we'd be looking at more time before an election and more time and more ways in which employers can challenge those pre-hearing issues, issues of eligibility for voters, issues of unit inclusion, meaning who gets to vote in the particular union election. Now, with the challenge that's been filed, and it's an Administrative Procedure Act challenge, so basically, you know, um, the AFL-CIO has challenged this saying that they didn't go through the notice and comment period that they were supposed to, they being the NLRB, thus these changes can't be put into effect. Um, I think the NLRB takes the position these were procedural and not substantive changes, so it was not necessary. But as things stand, um, they are not, you know, the new rules are not going into effect at least until the end of May. So what does that mean? Again, it depends a little bit on how long this sort of quarantine lasts with everyone. But what I think it means is there's a substantial possibility that in that post-pandemic world, either because of the challenge or, or because the NLRB decides that they're right and we need to go through a notice and comment period, that in this area of fertile unionization, we may still have the ambush election rules in place, which may make it easier that if there is organizing activity for unions to take advantage of those rules. Well, that's, uh, it's, that's interesting. And I guess we'll have to wait to see how that plays out a little bit. Absolutely. So um, lastly, and, and I don't want to keep you too long. I appreciate you coming on. Um, even beyond the union organizing, can you touch on briefly what other labor law issues uh, you expect to see in a post COVID-19 world? Sure. I mean, we've touched, you know, a bit on it already, um, which is, you know, the concerted activity under the National Labor Relations Act. I think you're going to continue to see those types of activities. Um, I don't know when people will necessarily listen to this, but we're recording this on a Wednesday. And on Friday, you know, we've heard that um, for Amazon, I think Walmart and Whole Foods employees, there's going to be a, quote, May Day demonstration. That's a good point. So this is just to timestamp this uh, to give some context. We are talking about this on Wednesday, April 29th, 2020. Yep. And so I think this uh, demonstration is supposed to be May 1st. Now, these are not necessarily unionized workplaces, but that activity, even in the absence of unions, is protected under the National Labor Relations Act. It's called concerted activity, meaning acting in concert, more than one employee, for other mutual aid or protection. So if you're getting together with other employees to try to improve your workplace, and this demonstration is for hazard pay and for health and safety issues, you know, it's very likely to be protected in that instance. And I think we will continue to see those types of issues. However, there's more subtle ones from the standpoint of concerted protected activity. Complaints to the press, you know, complaints on Facebook, you know, social media stuff in which you've tried to contact other employees through social media um, with respect to certain issues in the workplace. I think all those issues, you're going to see an increase of those types of things. And I think you will see, um, you know, charges filed with the National Labor Relations Board that, that raise those issues. Um, one other labor law issue that I've been talking to a lot of my unionized and clients, um, you know, is in a post-pandemic world, will labor arbitrators be 
more likely um, to return people to work in the context of massive unemployment. Um, there's a lot of people who cynically view labor arbitrators from the standpoint of people who are just, you know, exercising fundamental fairness and not necessarily, you know, making a decision based on the merits of each case. I don't necessarily agree with that. But you are going to see a world in which if a discharge is sustained, that person may find it much, much harder to find another job than they would have before that. And I think there may be something to um, maybe a higher level standard from the standpoint of terminations in a unionized workplace to go to arbitration in a post-pandemic world. So those are just some of the things that I think we've seen. And, you know, I think I think there will be others from the standpoint of employee power and employee empowerment because... Um, I don't think the attitude that we've seen so far really is going away at this point. That's a great point. And, and just from a logistics standpoint, are you seeing labor arbitrations, collective bargaining, those kinds of things that uh, really have, uh, for obvious reasons, depended so much on in-person interaction? Are you seeing a lot of those going virtual? We are starting to, is the way I would put it. I would say there's been initially... Um, there is sort of, as there is with any new issue, there's always an initial reluctance to do something different than how it's been done before. And that's sort of particularly true, as you know, Mike, in sort of the traditional labor world of, of union management relations, where there's sort of a lot of old fogies in that world who are used to changing things. It's not always been the most dynamic kind of um, sort of area of the law, so to speak. But in a world where you can't negotiate, you can't sit down in person, you need to find another way to do it. And um, FMCS has started to, to do trainings, and, and we are starting to see both labor arbitrations and negotiations being done virtually, either with Zoom you know, or telephonically. And you know what? It's different, but it's not impossible. That's what I think people are seeing. And I think depending on how long this goes, you will see more and more of it. I, I have no doubt because you can't just put everything off forever at this point. Well, that's true. And especially when you're not really so sure how long this is all going to last. No one knows. Let's hope it's not too long, but it's hard to say. I totally agree. Well, Dan Johns, my partner at Cozen O'Connor here in the Labor and Employment Department, thank you so much for taking some time and coming back on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, that was terrific. Hope you found it informative as well. Until the next time, stay well, and I hope all of your labor is productive.